everybody's a dreamer and everybody's a star and everybody's in movies it doesn't matter who you are there are stars in every city in every house and on every street Hello there, you are tuning in to the second installment of the uh, special Chicago International Film Festival uh, episode for the film stage. We are back about a week later and we've seen uh, almost a, uh, a, a dozen films each, so we have uh, plenty more to talk about. I'm here again with uh, Max O'Connell. Hi, I'm Max O'Connell and uh, I am a freelancer in Chicago, who writes for a few different places, but more recently for the film stage and RogerEbert.com. And I am Michael Snydell, which I'm not sure I mentioned, but I'm one of the uh, the chairs of the film stage show, uh, and I'm, I'm also a freelance writer. And yeah, these days it's mostly the <coughs> podcast, but you can hear my voice almost every week, which I'm deeply sorry about. But either way, you're already here, so you might as well listen. So Max and I are going to uh, talk again about some things that we saw in the past week through various uh, things as the uh, Chicago International Film Festival came to a close after after two weeks. I have to say it was it was pretty crazy to even go you know on a, on a, you know a Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon and, and walk into a full theater, uh, which which is pretty cool even for you know films that aren't not necessarily aren't on people's radar, but you know you take a chance with some of these, so that's uh, pretty great. I, and weirdly enough, speaking of taking chances, uh, Max and I have both decided to take a chance on Ash Mayfair's feature debut called. The Third Wife. Uh, Max, do you want to introduce this one a little bit? Sure. This is a Vietnamese film. It's about a uh, 14-year-old who becomes the third bride to a rich landowner in the 19th century Vietnam. And it deals with both her uncertainty of where she stands in that world and also the, uh, I, I suppose you'd say, the ups and downs of the lives of all, all three of the wives and other people living on uh, the rich guy's land. Yeah, that I would say that plot thread is very clear, but I think that Mayfair, for this being a feature debut, does a lot of bold things in terms of how many characters we're, we're dealing with. You know, that you're you're dealing with a, a number of wives and you're dealing with seemingly sisters. And so there is some characterization, characterization of, you know, all these wives being part of a family. But then there's also some implication that there are other families involved. And I I don't I don't speak of that at all as a, a, a strike against the film. In fact, I think it's it's something that is one of a many aspects that makes this like a, a very confident uh, debut. And I know that's kind of a, it's a little bit of a buzzword we used for debut filmmakers, but um, I, I guess the, the early way to talk, uh, talk about this without even getting into narrative is that this is a film that is very much focused particularly on, you know, this 14 year old May who, who is born into tradition and Mayfair uses some like relatively, what seems like relatively stock imagery in terms of like femininity and womanhood. Like there's a, there's a lot of beautifully framed, you know, shots of, um, of flowers and, uh, you know, caterpillars and cocoons. And, and so there's some familiar imagery, but I was really, really surprised how this film 
avoided like really easy schematics, even about its uh, its main kind of uh, main kind of plot, which which. Oddly enough, the the whole film kind of revolves around an incident where uh, May discovers something, but that incident doesn't really define any any of the narrative. Like it it, it has a really profound like thematic impact on the film and says a lot about these characters and who they are in front of others and behind closed doors. But yeah, I, I'm going on a little bit, but uh, Max, what I guess surprised you about this one or it made it stick out to you so much? Well, first I, what stuck, stuck out to me is that it's a film that it deals with a lot of heavy stuff. These are, um, it, it, it deals a lot with like the pain that this, this young girl goes through, not really being sure where she stands in this family, not really having a lot of agency, not Clearly having some some trouble adjusting to being a fourteen year old bride. Um, like it, it it deals with with a lot of that without being a dirge. It's like it, it's a very sensitively and carefully wrought film. And I think some of that comes. I don't know if you uh, saw Mayfair speak after the film. It was one of the rare audience Q and A's that wasn't terrible. Um, <laughs> And she talked a lot about how she took a lot of these stories from her family and she wanted to mm. convey what kind of a raw deal that women got in, in Vietnam and at, at the period without like being overtly like condemnatory, just more or less just trying to be honest about what they faced. And she also wanted to get into, you know, the the moments of, of beauty that were in it, like, say... Um, just how how gorgeous the land was around them. How uh, the, the friendships that developed between, say, May, uh, yeah, May and the daughters of the other wives. Yes, uh, things like that. And on top of that, she just has a really interesting eye. Like she gives the film this almost watercolor uh, aesthetic that is really uh, striking. It, it's like. I don't want to say like nothing I've seen this year, but it, it, it's a very distinct look. It's not only very distinct in, in terms of that, you know, sense of color, but it, you know, with the blocking, there's a lot of interesting things that kind of play with like very specific tableau framing, you know, as if it was, uh, you know, meant to, you know, uh, sorry, capture a single moment and, and things yes. like that. And and I think that the ways, I think the ways, especially, you know, it's really interesting. You're talking about that sensitivity. I, I think the ways that this, um, this roots the action in, in a sense of tradition and the way that it's almost bookended by these, by these rituals, like some, I wasn't familiar with, like there mm -hmm. like early on, there's one involving, um, an egg yolk, as a uh, as a moment to uh, consummate, there's the word I'm looking for, for a, a woman to consummate her her, her sexuality. Yeah, um, apparently it, it, it's some it's supposed to stand for fertility. Yes, yeah, and, and fertility is certainly something here. Like there are a number of different characters whose decisions are you know revolve around the need to create a create a boy like uh, I, I won't go further because there are a number of characters who are affected by that plight but there's almost something not necessarily dystopian because that implies there's more of a mythology or like a narrative architecture but um, 
there does seem to be some history that that this family is unable to uh, create a boy, which causes a huge amount of stress and, and gives like a certain dread to a lot of these proceedings that like comes externally from like also the realization that the, the lives of these women are entirely undervalued. Like I, I think the fact that it makes those two things you know, separate, but also makes us understand why maybe some of these characters cling so much to tradition is something that, okay, to bring it to what we talk about a lot these days is, you know, bringing a modern eye to to classical stories. And I think this does not do that. And, and I think that's part of why um, it, it's a a sensitivity that doesn't feel like, you know, postmodern or um, maybe postmodern isn't what I'm looking for. It Do you doesn't know feel I'm... like it's trying to correct the ills of the past. Sure. Yeah, I, I guess that goes along with what Mayfair was saying then in that Q&A. I was, I was not able to go to that, but yeah. Yeah, and, and it also, uh, on top of like dealing with the stress of, of creating a boy, it also, um, without wanting to get into the ending, it makes one understand the decision that a character is faced with near the end when it when I, I, I'm, tr- I'm trying to be very vague here. The, the, the main character spends much of the film praying that she gives birth to a son and she, among other things, like feels like she has accidentally caused one thing to happen. And also it ties into what she feels she can provide for her child, depending on what the, gen- the, the child's gender is. It's odd because this is, you know, we talked a little bit about the expectations of a, of a festival slate. And, and, you know, like they're, (laughs) they're in a way almost, you know, certain, certain keywords in the description of this film where, you know, it's, it's a little worrisome. What type of, what type of horror tale you're going to get from something like this, but yeah, but just it's, it's a constant sense of focus and it's ease and it's very surprising grace in, in a lot of these scenes. I, I, I have to admit, I was very surprised by almost um, not a final, but uh, th- there's a montage in the last like 20 or 30 minutes. And yeah. it's not at all what you'd expect, not only from a debut, but in terms of its rhythm and its editing. Like it at once calls back to uh, much of the imagery in the early part of the film but it it also stands on its own as this really bizarre moment that you almost calls into the ages of almost the underworld (laughs) like there's a there's a certain just like very brief spiritualist touch that just as quickly goes away but nonetheless feels totally cohesive so yeah uh mayfair I, i really think is is someone to watch and this is easily one of my favorite discoveries this year from a debut filmmaker. You know? One thing I wanted to uh, note. Uh, sure. She, uh, she, an artistic advisor on the film was the Vietnamese director An Hung Tran, who I, I'm not familiar with his work, but uh, he did The Scent of the Green Papaya, Seeklo, uh, which was a Golden Lion winner at Venice, and uh, Norwegian mm-hmm. Wood a little more recently. I'm not sure if you're familiar with any of his films. I don't I don't think so. The the Golden Lion winner you said I've heard in passing, but no. Yeah, yeah. So I guess uh, I I was going to ask if you had seen it, um, if you could detect any influence, but uh, now uh, I can't ask that at all. <laughs> 
Well, I, I'm sorry that I haven't seen everything, Max. Nor nor have oh. I. So uh, <laughs> yeah, we're we're. Um, at any rate, we're both very impressed by Mayfair's work, and I agree. I'm I'm very eager to see what she does next. We wanted to note that the third wife it did get picked up for distribution by Film Movement, and they're planning a release sometime next year. Always a good thing to mention. Yeah, <laughs> Max, tell me a little bit. Of- Uh, Or tell me at least about uh, one or two more that were your favorites of this crop. One thing that I liked that we we both saw, but you saw uh, last week, was Diane, the narrative uh, debut by Kent Jones, the critic and uh, director of the documentary Hitchcock Truffaut. Yeah, I I, uh, one thing I want to note about it is that it's. Got a great sense of, of, of place. This is the addiction drama uh, slash aging drama starring May- Mary Kate Place as a woman who is dealing both with her friends who are all um, aging, uh, gradually dying off, and also with her uh, son played by Jake Lacey of uh, Girls and Carol and Obvious Child fame, mm-hmm. uh, dealing with his heroin addiction. And I, I'll be honest, I found the addiction material a little bit rote, both uh, on a writing level and on an acting level. I think I've liked Lacey in the past, but I feel he plays it just a little too broad. Um, But it's very absorbing when it looks at how someone watches as age takes her friend and and gradually approaches her. Uh, Place is really good in this. And it's interesting watching her when she's particularly out of, um, I, I guess not out of place, but um, <laughs> dealing with grief and not really knowing where she's going forward. My favorite scene in the film doesn't really involve any dialogue. She's just in a bar sitting, drinking alone, and she puts on a jukebox, uh, um, and it's uh, Bob Dylan's uh, Tonight I'll Be Staying Here With You, and it's her just kind of singing along with her, into her gin and tonic. And it's a scene that moved me for reasons that I'm not sure I can fully articulate. Uh, and I also, in just on a side note, really enjoyed uh, a number of veteran actors like Estelle Parsons of Bonnie and Clyde fame and uh, Andrea Martin show up as her friends. You know, to to respond to your, to your Jake Lacey thing, you know, I, I will fully admit that it took me, I'm going to say it took me at least 30 minutes to acclimate to the dialogue and especially uh, Jake Lacey's character. I I think that he, I I think that that was a a technique, you know, in terms of, you know, I'm not saying that he didn't overplay it. Like there's a a definite over eagerness. There's a, a, a twitchy, like, unpredictable that's like very unpleasant <laughs> to be around in Jake Lacey's uh, performance I, in those moments. But I, I think that there was something about the editing and compared to the later parts of the film where he goes through a change and has, it doesn't necessarily bring a new performance, but it was such a, a transformation in how that character was played that I was almost retroactively okay with the weirdness of that earlier period, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna quibble with the, the possibility that the treatment of addiction is a little bit, uh, a little bit rote in here. Uh, I, I think I, again, I think it's the episodic quality that uh, potentially made some of that material work better for me. And yeah, I, that, that Dylan, 
moments in in the bar is is just um it's it's sublime um yeah and it it moved me deeply in a way i wasn't expecting but um yeah i i guess i'm just uh repeating some of the things you said now but uh i'm glad you had a you had a chance to see it and and i I guess we haven't really gotten into it but do you do you see why i potentially had a little bit of difficulty in describing where it goes considering it's not really it's not really a typical character study that you know we'd even get some from someone like you know a hollow center or something like that yeah it's not it's not particularly event driven and it's also even for a slice of life thing it like it it really kind of jumps around in a strange and and this isn't a criticism i I like I, i like it um but it jumps around in a way that's kind of hard to really describe, both in in a time way and in a in how it goes back and forth between what could be memory and what could be. I'm not I'm not sure I'd say imagined, but <laughs> it, it, it can be it can be difficult to describe to describe as it goes on, and that for me is a uh, compliment. I, and uh, well, tell me about it since you're now just. Uh catching up to things I, I talked about. I unfortunately was bad and did not watch any of the things I said I was going to that you described last week. But um, tell me about tell me about a, a new film that you saw. I know you said Third Wife was your favorite, but what were some other things you liked? Uh, the other thing that I particularly liked was Sauvage. This is the new film by uh, Camille Vidal-Naquet. I think he's a new director. Let me just double check that. Um, and it's starring Felix Maritot, who had a role in 120 Beats Per Minute last year. And it's a film... I, I loved that one, so now I'm extra curious. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he plays a uh, young man who w- is working as a, a prostitute. And he's mostly living on the street or squatting in apartments and... It deals with him as he is dealing with an illness, like and not really getting the treatment he needs for it, and also as he's clearly jumping into uh, various beds just not to be alone. It's very frank in its depiction of what it's like both to work in sex work and also live in uh, poverty without seeming like it's just piling on and and that's saying something considering that it does get fairly heavy at at some points but it's very frank and very sensitive like there are moment there was something that was introduced about i think midway through involving a john who is maybe abusive and it was clearly something that was going to come back later and my heart just kind of sank because i felt like it was just going to be total misery and it's handled in a very careful way that I really appreciated and did not expect, uh, not wanting to get into it too much. And, uh, Merit, Meritone is, is very, very good in the, in the weed role. I, I I'm curious. Uh, I, I don't want to only compare it, compare it to uh, 120 BPM. Cause you know, even that is, a, is a relatively strange film in terms of its, uh, treatment of, of sickness. I, I am, I'm obviously, guessing here but is it is it hiv or aids that he's specifically dealing with no okay all right well uh, then i i'm just curious uh does what is the 
treatment of the illness like? Is this like keep to a very intimate? If I, if I remember study? correct, if I remember correctly, it's it's some sort of a lung infection, and he's just not getting the treatment he needs for it, and seems to not take it very seriously, at least at first when he does get it. And and on top of that, like he has had some issues with drugs and that exacerbates uh, his his uh, illness. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm uh, I I admit that I uh, I don't stay away from films when they're specifically about sex work at, at all. But there's just there's a certain reticence, you know, um, when there's other things available. But I, I did actually to transition. I, I did uh, watch my own film uh, about uh, sex work. And that was Sudaba Mortazai's A Joy, which actually won one of the highest awards at uh, the Chicago International Film Festival. So Joy stars, I I haven't looked into the production, but I do nonetheless uh, find it interesting that at least in terms of the film, it seems like all of the character names were also the names of the people. So the star is this woman, Joy, whose name is uh, Joy Anna Wulukia Alfonsis. And um, she is a, a woman who is sent from Nigeria to Austria. And, you know, she she paid to get sent there to try to get a better life to, have, to help her family. She also feels obligated through uh, Juju, which in the sense that they talk about how in Nigeria, Johns have a system set up where you not only have to pay to get set up, sent to Europe, but you need to swear an oath. And your oath that you're swearing is that you will pay your family a certain amount of money and or else a curse will be put on you. So it's really kind of a racket. It's, you know, I'm not trying to degrade it or anything, but it's it's very much like built into a corrupt idea. And yet uh, Joy absolutely believes in it. So there are a number of decisions throughout the film where she, you know, is not only stuck in an incredibly difficult place as a as a prostitute and you know, in one of many very sad uh, details, they're, they're told that they're going to Europe to clean. They they are not going to Europe to clean, unfortunately. So Joy revolves, it's kind of in Medieval Res at, uh, at a time where Joy has been there for a while and trying to pay off her madame. And uh, she's told to supervise uh, Precious, who is a very young girl who is coming and um, is very uh, deferent to the idea of being being a prostitute. And so, you know, there is, I, I think that, I think there are a few things here that are a, a problem. I, one is that this is very much kind of a, it, it's not a standard social issues drama because it's, it involves around, revolves around women from Nigeria, that the main character uh, sorry, Joy and Precious are both Nigerian, and that brings a huge amount of specificity. This uh, this woman, uh, Anwilika Alfonsis, who plays Joy, is just uh, she's fantastic. But I, I think that the problem is that whenever this film turns to some of the specific contexts of being an immigrant in, in Europe, it starts to feel like a polemic. Like pretty early on, um, there's a where she's talking to. You know, someone about because one of her clients wants her to testify in order to testify against like her madame. And this is very early on. And 
those conversations do not have a sense of naturalism. And they very much seem like they are railing against the realities of what uh, these characters go through. Um, so it's so it's a little unfortunate that a number that when this actually turns to like progress for these characters, that it, it takes on a different takes on a, a different tone and, and a certain d- different tint in the dialogue that's that just doesn't yeah doesn't feel as natural. Uh, and and then I think the other thing that's interesting is that I think that this film has some interesting things to say about trying to get out of this, trying to get out of prostitution. And, you know, like, I'm not saying it's not necessarily stereotypes, but I think there's a certain presumption, you know, for, for either our peace of mind or just because it's, it's easier to forget about that narrative is what actually happens when someone pays off their Madame and seemingly gets out of the business and what that even means because you're still starting back at zero. So I think that the way that it, it conveys that and, and shows some of the the difficulties of that is really interesting. Uh, but again, I just, I just, I can't necessarily recommend this one, even as much as I think it has, it has really good intentions and, uh, and on some level, I can understand, like, I, I can't be mean to it because there are a lot of good things about it. And it, it's not necessarily a drudge, but it's it, it's just it's really hard to make a social issues drama. Like, Max, I, I'm sure you've come into this, too, that like when you're when a filmmaker has an idea that they a political idea that they want to communicate, it's pretty hard to do it and not show your card. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, this Sounds strangely like the film I feared Sauvage would be. Yeah, I, I, it's just weird because there's a certain expectation that this stuff happens to come with the material. I, I guess I'm more being more philosophical than specific here. I, and I guess what I'm saying is that as a as a critic, I, I feel in a weird place when it comes to certain films like this. Not for any like certain certain you know quota of you know wokeness or or feeling like I need to lie about it or anything, but rather that like can I really blame something if it hurts hits a certain beat that I knew it would have to hit? Like you know I, I felt this a little bit with Rafiki. I I don't know quite know where that leaves me, but it's it's nonetheless something I've been thinking about in in relation to some of these films that are created with such a specific purpose in mind. I, I guess it comes down to whether or not you find the actual experience of watching it um, more than just the me- whatever message it's trying to get across. And, you know, if it isn't, then you're kind of, however well-intentioned it might be, however much it might need to hit those beats, if it's hitting them in a fairly uninspired way, then uh, it's not like you can pretend that that you like it. Sure, sure. And again, I'm not trying to, I I potentially put myself in a dead end here, but it's nonetheless something I wanted to consider, especially when it's, you know, even if it's a a semi-familiar story, or at least it's what you imagine this story to be, like putting it in a different milieu does change things. And and it's, yeah, I I don't know. On that same level, you know, I would like to talk about another immigrant story that did surprise me, though. And that was um, Sticks, which I 
uh, took a chance on. It's uh, it's a film by Wolfgang Fischer, who is a uh, a director who previously made a film called uh, What You Don't See, which was a uh, which was a German thriller. And so this is uh, Sticks is you know it's not it's not necessarily all is lost, but it, it's kind of hard to not at least mention that in the tagline. It's about a, uh, a paramedic um, who leaves her job in Germany to go sail. And she's sailing to the Ascension Island, which was not a place I was familiar with, but uh, apparently it's, uh, it's a place that Darwin wrote about and uh, is known as an artificial jungle. But uh, suffice to say, she does not make it to Ascension Island. But I, I think, so this is kind of about this one woman um, played by uh, Suzanne Wolf, who uh, I, I was not familiar with prior to this, but she's been in a number of things. And um, so for a long time, it's just extremely process-based. You're watching her, you know, navigate the ship, use compasses, like just uh, make meals. And so for the first 30 to 45 minutes, it is this extremely uh, process-based filmmaking, a lot of extreme close-ups on her face, um, her, like, you know, trying to sail through storms, and and just, like, this very intimate drama, and she comes upon a ship, and at that point, it becomes a, uh, a morality play and becomes a subject of um, what she should do in this situation. And I don't necessarily want to reveal the exact circumstances of the situation but the she is required to she's required to do something illegal in order to help these people and she's required to do something that is that her country and certain regulations bar her from doing uh, safely or um, without uh, any legal precautions. Um, but uh, again, what I think is so good about it is that it, it's process, uh, oriented, like very static, very, uh, patient, rigorous filmmaking, um, makes that morality play incredibly interesting. So you feel every moment of helplessness in a way that you wouldn't, you know, in a, in a green grass style, like intensity or something like that. So in some ways it, it does, it, it, it is very much in uh, in texture to something like All is Lost. But the addition of the ethical situation, I think, makes it a lot more interesting. And I think it avoids a lot of pratfalls that come from a, a white filmmaker telling a story about someone who could very easily be a white savior. So, yeah, um I was really surprised with this one. It's uh, it's it's gorgeously made. It's um, it, it has a, a wonderful detached style. Like just just to give give a small sense of what it's like uh, in rhythm. Literally, the open opening scene of a film of the film is a static shot of a car um, crashing into a light pole, and then an overhead shot as we watch uh, paramedics and police come and them just tape it off and handle the crash. And that's like a, it's a, it's a perfect um, introduction to understanding the approach of this film. And also like the, 
the moral struggles of uh, the main character, who's a paramedic. So yeah, I I am not sure if it's been picked up yet, but uh, if you get a chance to see it, it's uh, S T Y X, like the the river sticks. I I would really recommend that, especially as uh, a better story about conflicts of immigration. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to keep my out eye out for this one. I saw a number of films that were more or less social problems, films that fell into some of the traps that I feared that uh, Sauvage or or The Third Wife might. I guess the most worthwhile of the bunch is The Mercy of, a, of the Jungle. It's a Belgian film that looks at uh, the late 90s, uh, the, the Congo War, and it starts out fairly promising where these there are these two soldiers who uh, get separated from their, their their platoon and have to make their way through the jungle to try to get get back with them and not you know get get killed by the enemy and at, as just an ex- experience it's it's fairly riveting because one of the soldiers is very experienced one is not the one who is more experienced comes down sick with malaria uh, the one who is less experienced, has to prove himself worthy, and is also, um, he's someone who was a farmer, so he has some experience living off the land, but this is a much more hostile territory. And when it's just dealing with that, it's very interesting because it doesn't seem to be preaching much. And then gradually as things go on, it seems to turn into a fairly standard uh madness of war thing complete with an ending that I knew it was going to arrive at the minute that a certain character was introduced. Um, It just becomes more prosaic and more predictable, but it is capably directed and it has a pretty impressive use of sound uh, in a way that feels more immersive than say, this isn't a perfect comparison, but like, I what I feared going into this was Beast of No Nation, where it was just where I felt sure. it was just a show offy thing that would danced on the surface of its subject. This felt more lived in, at least for a little while before it started just being more interested in the points it had to make. Yeah, I I I, I, uh, I did see that one was um, you know it looked potentially interesting and it was uh, it, it, it's odd to speak about the trailer, but uh, the trailer was interesting because it was very much cut like. A, cut like a uh you know pulse pounding thriller <laughs> like there was something very uh, crowd pleasing about the way it was being sold so it's you know I, I guess that's the weird thing about about festivals in general is it's like you know you absolutely want to you know go around the world and, and there's a certain excitement uh at watching so many different films from so many different countries but also you know you're reminded that like how many directors like playing within the lines or how yeah. necessary that that is in in many countries if i want to be you know more fair um one thing i will note that i i appreciated in that for a social problem film it doesn't feel touristic and uh i, I think it makes a difference that the director uh joel correct akezi is is a black director it's something interesting that um you know especially when it comes to immigration uh, going back to immigration stories, it, it's interesting that uh, Sticks, for instance, had a has a uh, white white director, but uh, Joy had a, had a black director's, and it you know whether that is a, is a subject of uh, 
representation or you know how that represents in the, in the film it, it is certainly good that we're starting to you know not see that as a regular thing but uh a, certainly a, a larger diversity in terms of who is directing films i mean even uh i i, I know that sif had a uh it wasn't black voices i'm sorry it's uh there was a panel in the in the slate that was dedicated to stories about um about uh, black characters, not just uh, African Americans, but black characters in general. Um, yeah, it, it helps also that this was not a. Um, this was a. Uh, he's not from America. He's a Rwandan. Okay, I. Uh, you know, I, this is this is a semi awkward transition then, but you know that brings me to a doc I, I didn't like that much, but I, I think is nonetheless interesting. Uh, called the feeling of being watched. And so this was particularly interesting to me because it is it, it's about uh, the director Asia uh, Bundai is a um, is an Arab American in Bridgeview, Chicago, which is a, a community that I'm um, relatively familiar with. A friend had an aunt who lived there, so I've I've been around there a number of times. And um, so this was about uh, her uncovering one of the largest FBI terrorism probes uh, conducted before 9-11. Like, it, it, it uh, kind of begins with this idea that um, the people around the neighborhood were, you know, seeing FBI, uh, you know, clothed and unclothed officers in their, um, in their neighborhood, like, you know, around, or around the 90s. And, and in particular, there was a uh, pretty high profile arrest. It was the first person who ever ended up on um, the first American citizen ever publicly put on a watch, a watch list was a person from this community named uh, Muhammad uh, Abdullah. I, I believe is how you say his name. Um, he was uh, accused of essentially laundering money through this uh, this uh, organization, uh, this charity organization he ran, like this uh, mosque. And this is a really, really interesting subject. I, I think it was also, I think it was New York Times uh, a few years ago. They even reported on this uh, this probe and. Um, this operation, which hilariously was called um, Vulgar Betrayal. Uh, and so it was like a 30,000-page FBI docu- document um, that involves this just small community in uh, Chicago. And, you know, it's 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 just kind of okay. Like, it's it's interesting because the director is, is a part of that community. And I think that adds a lot to this interesting thing where she'll go up to her neighbors and be like, you know, can you tell me about the neighborhood? And obviously a lot of people are like, absolutely not. But, you know, just the sense of tight-knit and, and how personally familiar she is with a lot of the people in this community and the passion she feels. And, you know, obviously the fact that, like, some of her family is like redacted in these documents. So it's, but it's, it's just ultimately kind of an okay doc. Like it's, it's framed somewhat amateurishly with like this certain, this certain like stock thriller crime music or like procedural music. Like there's a certain, there's a, there's an over-reliance on some like quick editing to try to break up, talking heads and, and you know like she does ultimately get like into some people like early on she gets this uh 
this person who was part of the FBI investigation, you know, uh, almost two decades ago. And he's like, and, and, and she basically blatantly asks, like, you know, did you think that there was any Islamophobia in terms of how how this investigation was <laughs> brought out? And he, like, does not at all give a straight answer. He's like, you know, I think Islamophobia is, like, obviously a real person. And he's like, I am not an Islamophobe, as you can see. And he's like, well, maybe not as you can see. <laughs> But it's just, like, hilarious, this guy uh, putting himself into these logical pretzels, trying to seem like uh, a, a good guy. Uh, yeah, it's um, – the story's really interesting, and, you know, it's not hugely different from, you know, that New York Times story from a, a couple years ago. But I, I think I have a lot more interest in this, partly because of my proximity to it and – um my interest in in voyeurism, I guess it's a it's a weird thing to say in a podcast, but yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it, it's especially weird and also like really needed to see, especially uh, as I said, the the perspective adds a lot of it. Someone who has you know directly experienced Islamophobia and talking about her experiences growing up, and you know even just uh, little details about. You know, like how she was um, it, it's not things that I haven't heard, but even her saying things about how she was trained to not do certain things growing up, like don't ever argue with your parents in front of people or don't like, you know, uh, many of these things that we take for granted and granted have been like explored in other pieces of the media, but nonetheless contextualized here adds its own power side of that, speaking of actual criminals, is uh, El Hanhel, which is probably the most purely entertaining uh, film I saw at the at the festival. Um, and I I have that here that it comes out in uh, no, on November 9th in Chicago. So it's it is a a film from Luis Ortega. It's a Argentinian film about about a young man named uh, who the press dubbed Carlitos, the angel of death. And he's one of the most notorious criminals in the history of uh, Argentina. He killed 11 people and committed over like 45 thefts in his time as a, uh, as a criminal. And, 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 you know, it's, so I think what's interesting about this film from a number of things, I mean, it, it's a, it's a very, flashy but also very um very sensuous film like it's not in any way uh very surface level in terms of how it deals with uh crime I, you know it's it's especially interesting as an antidote to almost the catholicism of a lot of gangster films we see like there's uh L lorenzo Faro, who is just a, a fantastic um uh Sorry, he, he was in an unknown. He was discovered for this film, uh, and he plays the the lead Carlos with just these this luscious curly hair. <laughs> um, and so he's like very much a, a libertine. Like like there is very much a thrill and a, an erotic charge to him committing these crimes. And and I think that there is just this uh, this glorious unpredictability to the film, and especially his character. Like it's. It's in some ways like uh, comparable to something like Godard's vision, vision of the outlaw, 
but also far more like uh, primal and um, and also also queer. Like that. Like there's a very even if it's not oddly um, or it's oddly not seen of him actually committing any of these sexual acts, but there's a constant sense of eroticism that just kind of swirls around this whole film, which is uh, appropriate because it's actually produced by Pedro Almodovar. And, um, and uh, yeah, the cast is, is excellent. His mother's played by like Mercedes Moran, who was uh, pretty excellent in, um, in uh, Almodovar's last film, actually, as well as like a Louis Neco from uh, Neruda, as well as a fantastic woman. So it's, it's certainly clear that he got some, some money for this film, but I was really, really taken aback by just, uh, by just how entertaining and, um, sensual and yeah, just uh, intelligent. It was about these things. Like I, 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 you know, at a certain point, there's a certain sense of the editing of something like a guy rich or anything, but there's not that glibness or, or that fast editing, but rather a certain sense of, uh, of cool that exudes off the film. Um, but is also again, very, very queer. Like, like there's a, there's a very clear moment about halfway through the film where we meet someone who's very much like a very masculine gangster <laughs> and seeing him in contrast is just like, is just so, so interesting. Um, and, and I think the other last thing I want to talk about is he, he as well is not, um, um, bucks so many of the stereotypes we assume uh, with, we associate with criminals because he's very much, not only is he a pretty boy and, there is a, a, a sexuality to him, but like he grew up pretty well. Like he, he's not calculating at all. If anything, you know, when he kills someone, it just kind of happens. And there's like a, going back, I guess to Godard is there's a like romanticism in him running away and doing things just to do them. Um, and yeah, it's, it's ultimately like not a great film and, and maybe comparable even some to something like Bronson. I, but I, I'm really surprised by this, uh, this lead again, by uh, played by Lorenzo Faro. And it's probably the most fun I had of, you know, any of the festival screenings I saw. Yeah. I, I saw that this was playing and it caught my eye. I just didn't, uh, end up uh, finding a way to fit it in. Um, I You mentioned Aldo, uh, Almodovar, also Cecilia Roth, who is the lead in his All About My Mother, is, is also in the film as uh, a character named Aurora, it says. Oh, yeah. No, she's, uh, she's excellent in this as well as this, uh, yeah, as this mother figure of a friend who, like, is, um, like, kind of comes on to Carlitos, but also has this, like, very strange kind of Oedipal relationship with him. Like, there's just a lot of really interesting dynamics with a lot of these side characters, including that character's son, Ramon, who is a, a, a more traditional gangster, but also seems to be harboring like some suppressed sexuality stuff as well. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm eager to check it out. Uh, you said it comes out this year? Yeah, it seems like it comes out uh, on November 9th in the, in okay. the U.S. So I, I have to think that's probably L.A. and New York. But um, I could see this for Chicago people. I could very much see this playing at somewhere like a landmark or a uh, as a music at a music box. Yeah. Um, all right. Yeah, I, I'll keep an eye out for that. Um, I saw a few other 
things, most of which were not great. Um, I saw a Moroccan film called Sophia, which is about a young girl who gets pregnant and um, out, it's out of wedlock and getting pregnant out of wedlock is a crime in Morocco. And it's about her, uh, her family forcing the boy that she says is, is the father uh, to do what they view as the right thing. And it starts out as a social realism drama and then kind of turns into more of a melodrama. And I don't think the director, I'm going to absolutely butcher this name, Miriam ben Barak Aloisi. Yeah, uh, I, I don't feel he, uh, they blend this particularly well. Um, there's a twist in the last third in particular that I did not accept. It felt entirely mechanistic and I felt it undermined whatever social points the film was trying to make about uh, expectations put on on uh, young people and particularly on women in 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 uh, under these these laws. Uh, I also saw a Mexican film called Guy Denis Naval. Um, it's from a director by the name of Zavi Sala. It's a it's a Mexican film that focuses on a Zapotec girl and her mother who become the live-in maid and well daughter of the live-in maid for a rich Mexican family, and it deals with classism and, and anti-Native racism in, in Mexico in a way that on paper is very interesting and underexplored, at least as far as, as films as, that I usually see. But as played out, it's pretty one note and dirgy uh, and kind of hits every beat that you would expect of like whatever moment of kindness they have is then undermined by a casual act of cruelty. There's a party that the young girl throws to kind of get away from it all that ends up going terribly wrong. It's just, it's very much a film that is about the message it's trying to sell more than anything else, uh, right down to an ending that is meant to, this is an an artful way of of putting it, prove the (laughs) usefulness of, of these characters in the lives of these rich people in a way that I felt ultimately kind of still made it look like they were there to serve rather than people who deserved their own fulfilling life. I, I, it was also something that I kind of I, I felt at every point, every every turn this thing was going to take because it felt pre-programmed. So I can't recommend it. <laughs> it is a good name, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw the title was part of what interested me. And, and uh, that is not a good way to select uh, <laughs> select things on a slate, it looks like. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I, I have a couple more that. I checked out, but there were two I'm going to group together for a reason that I'll um, explain in a second. But uh, first, there's the the Fireflies Are Gone, which is a uh, Canadian um, a Canadian coming of age film about a uh, young woman named uh, Leonie who uh, lives in a old uh, mill town that's now been kind of gentrified and is now just kind of a humdrum suburb and her excuse me her parents are divorced her ma- her mother remarried a right-wing radio host and her huh. father is a 
was actually the union president of the mill that closed down. So you might be worried about <laughs> that dynamic uh, because this right wing host, of course, also had a direct was directly involved in getting her father essentially run out of town. So it's kind of weird because there is that seemingly explosive <laughs> dynamic kind of always in the backdrop um, but the, it doesn't really light the fuse until really far in the film. And honestly, I didn't really like when it lights the fuse. I think this is otherwise really pretty good as a, as a kind of coming of age tale. Like it, it reminded me of, uh, Tudor, uh, Nicole from a few years ago, which I know, oh. um, uh, which I, which I know, uh, some people really liked and, you know, has something in common with some of the more, uh, laid back, uh, not necessarily mumblecore, but uh, laid back, especially like New York films. Like, um, but that was nonetheless a French Canadian film that had a just wonderful uh, waking dream sense of uh, sense of reality and uh, in a um, a great ease to its relationship and its uh, its characters. And in particular, I think this as well. Uh, Leone, played by uh, Car- Carole uh, Tremblay. Uh, mainly, her main relationship is with uh, with Steve, played by Pierre Luc Brillant, who is a uh, guitar teacher, and uh, she continually keeps running into at her local diner, and they strike up a friendship. Uh, and uh, I'm not spoiling anything to say that it is entirely a platonic uh, friendship. And a, a number of great moments come from that that realization and that like that knowledge that this is going to to stay platonic and uh, thus they can just kind of continually to grow along with each other while also having kind of the the hangout vibe of you know last summer before going to college. So it's it's not anything like tremendously different and. But it's nonetheless really well done. The uh, Tremblay is is really excellent in bringing across this certain sarcasticness or sarcasm and a certain like edge without uh, bringing it into precociousness. And also, the dialogue has a great self awareness of that um, that odd time in your life where you. You know, you use that sarcasm as, as a defense because you're just angry at everything and you don't necessarily know why. And I thought the the movie uses that in in a way that draws to it, or excuse me, draws attention to it, but also felt unnecessarily uh, knowledgeable. Or, or I'm sorry, not unnecessarily, uh, unusually uh, knowledgeable about that subject. So yeah, it's again, I, I don't. I don't think when the plot intervenes, it works quite as well. But but the stuff that's more laid back, a lot of the the character work is just uh, is really well done and mostly avoids rote characterizations or endings. Yeah, the the comparison to Tudor Nicole, which I liked very much, uh, kind of made me perk up. I, I am <laughs> curious to see uh, anything, at least in in general realm of of where that was. It's it's not in the same visual register, and there's not quite a sense of uh, you know, the. I, I mean, I think the closest this gets to like fabulism is the the. The, set, the score has uh, this great sense of um, playfulness and, and drama to it that almost feels 
uh, or, or that seems like very intentionally out of place, but nonetheless lends a certain, again, like a, a certain waking dream and, and a little bit of a, uh, a, a magical realist touch to this that I, that I felt in Tudor Nicole. Well, it will tell me about, I, I know that uh, you saw two docs that you were uh, pretty disappointed about. Uh, one about, um, sorry, one about Buster Keaton and one about William Friedkin. So, can can you tell me about those? Sure. The first is the Great Buster, which actually I think is in New York right now, uh, and it should come to Chicago. I want to say next month because uh, the Sis- the Gene Siskel Film Center is showing a number of uh, Keaton films next month. But it's Peter Bogdanovich's uh, documentary about the life of Bu- and films of Buster Keaton. Bogdanovich's affection for Keaton is clear, as of course it would be. He's he's someone who speaks very eloquently and at, and at length about classic Hollywood. But the the film itself feels like anyone could have made it. It it hits the ups, it hits the downs. It shows a lot of clips that anyone who's seen the Buster Keaton films has seen before. Some of the talking heads are interesting, like Bill Hader has a has a fair amount of interesting stuff to say. Uh, Bill Irwin is interesting. Others are stretching it. It's the director of the most recent Spider-Man, John Watts, shows up to talk about how the Buster Keaton stone face influenced how he shot Spider-Man in his recent movie. It's a little bit of a stretch. Uh, He may be very... um, he may be entirely in earnest, but uh, it's not terribly interesting. And uh, just in general, this hits – if you've ever read a book or an article or a, a Wikipedia uh, entry on Buster Keaton, you more or less know what you're going to get. It's only really interesting when dealing with some of his later years in which his films are maybe not at their best, but he will occasionally get a Keaton moment in. And Bogdanovich – devotes the entire last third to the most fruitful period of his career so as to not go out on a sad note. And it ends up being just kind of a highlight of, of great uh, Buster Keaton scenes. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad to watch those again, but they're, they're scenes I've seen before. And without contextualization that, you know, uh, brings something new to them, <laughs> that, that seems a little like a waste, of, a waste of your time, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... Subtitle is a celebration, and it is certainly that. Mm. It's just not a particularly uh, exciting one. It is still preferable to Friedkin Uncut, which is the film about William Friedkin, the director of The French Connection and The Exorcist, and is the worst film I've seen at this festival, and it wasn't close. Uh, It's very bizarrely structured, where it starts out with The Exorcist, and then jumps to, like, the French Connection, and then jumps to some of the earlier things he did, and only covers about half a dozen things he directed. So if you're interested in hearing anything he might have had to say about adapting Harold Pinter's The Birthday Party, or maybe some of his less successful films like uh, Jade or Deal of the Century, uh, you're shit out of luck. You're not going to hear a single thing about them. They're not mentioned. And... Most of the stories he gets into about the French Connection and The Exorcist and so on and so forth are trivia bits that you've probably heard before. He's very demanding, but he also is someone who kind of falls between the new Hollywood self-conscious artiness and the I'm a director doing a job. He, He 
goes on a little bit about how he doesn't consider himself an artist, which might be interesting if it were explored a little more, but it's clear that he doesn't get... Uh, the director, Francesco Zappel, had limited time to interview him and didn't get that much time to really ask him to elaborate or otherwise didn't think about doing it because a lot of this is padded out with scenes of Friedkin telling more or less the same stories at various festivals uh, that are showing maybe a remastered version of uh, Sorcerer or something like that. It's just, it's very, whatever the opposite of probing is, that that's this. Um, and it, like, he will occasionally go on about directors he likes now. Like, he, he apparently, he thinks Catherine Bigelow is the greatest director working right now. He likes Damien Chazelle. But if you ask him to elaborate on these things, well, actually, I, no, nobody does ask him to elaborate on these things. <laughs> it's just, it's a very surface level documentary about a great artist. Like I was hoping for another De Palma, but it's clear that Zappel does not have the kind of relationship that Noah Bombick and, and Jake Paltrow had with Brian De Palma. And it's clear that Zappel is maybe not the kind of director who would be able to get that anyway. Yeah. De Palma was the one I was going to mention, which, you know, for whatever limitations it has, I mean, it's, not lacking in in material at, at all. Like you know, there's a, a a real sense of of De Palma at least you know reckoning with many different things. You know, even if he has interpretations that are somewhat bizarre in light in some of the larger understandings of some of those some of that work. So that's well, that's sure. kind of a bummer that Friedkin's not capable of the same thing. But yeah, I, I don't know if he's just not reflective enough or if it's a case of he's not being asked the right questions by the right person. It, it's it's hard to say. I can only say that as at the what's on the screen is nowhere near as well edited and uh, really pretty dull. It, it, move, it, it It's not a long film, and it felt longer than anything I, I saw at the festival. I saw quite a few two-and-a-half-hour films. Uh, well, so I, I mean, I guess I'll ask you this. I'm going to put you on the spot. If there was another filmmaker who would do something like this, who would you like to see uh, do it? I, I think I know what you're going to say, because I know, I, I know that you have affection for a film from the last few years that the Oscars ignored and some people don't like its editing very much. Uh, you're, you're <laughs> suggesting that uh, I would personally camp outside Warren Beatty's uh, and then ask him <laughs> several questions about rules don't apply. I would never. Um, I see. I, I don't know that I would do that with Beatty because he is, at least he was in the past a notoriously prickly um, interview subject. Like, doesn't doesn't seem to like talking about himself very much. That might have been in the past. Um, I was thinking Godard just because I would be intrigued to see people try to get something out of Godard and him steadfastly refusing to explain anything. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm trying to think if Vard has never specifically done something about... Godard, right? Like there was the whole thing, obviously, in Faces, Places, and Godard has been involved in a number number of things. But you know, maybe Varda would be the one to do that, even if we get a whole movie that was just him dodging. Her. Yeah, um, yeah, that was that was just someone off the top of my head. Um, like, th th it's a fair question. Like, I think you need a level of willingness to talk about things that at least you perceive as a failure, which Brian De Palma has, and um, Friedkin 
it, it, well, again, he's not really asked about most of his failures, except the ones that he's proud of, like Sorcerer and Cruising. I did see one other film-related documentary. Yes, uh, please tell me about that one. It's called Censored. It's an Australian film that has a pretty intriguing pre- uh, premise. It's the... The director's name is Sari Braithwaite. I think she is, on top of a filmmaker, she is, I I believe, an academic. And she created an hour-long documentary entirely using banned motion picture footage from the late 50s to the early 70s in Australia, like stuff that was taken out. And some of the films are recognizable. Like There's a a scene from Persona. There's a scene from Bob Dylan, Don't Look Back. Uh, There's a scene from uh, Godard's Masculine Feminine. But it's interesting because it starts out, she clearly started out with the idea that she was going to liberate these clips that were taken out and uh, determined to be not uh, proper for the public. But she found that she did not like a lot of these clips because some of them... Like there's the most interesting part in the film is she gets to like she'll occasionally put on the screen the reason that that a clip was cut from a film. And at one point she puts on like uh, there's a scene involving a woman being slapped by her lover or her husband. And like that's the description. And then you see a good 10 minute montage of stuff like that. And it becomes deeply, Mm. deeply uncomfortable. Um, and she starts to craft a story about how a lot of these things that were cut, um, even if they were cut for not always like for not artistic reasons, for, for maybe prudish reasons. And regardless of whether or not the films were good or bad, these are still things that are being cut that are made by primarily male directors. Like, in fact, the only thing that, uh, is, is cut that isn't from a male director is from a Varda film, Le Bonheur. And everything else is like there's a lot of nudity that's been cut, but it's like ogling or voyeuristic or just not comfortable. There's a lot of there's also an entire sequence where she takes up she uh, cuts together all of the scenes involving uh, sexual assault. And it's like these these sequences are are interesting on their own and like the the problem is that her narration throughout is not very good um she seems to search for thesis statements to filter these through rather than let us experience these and uh let it come through naturally and it feels like she kind of robs us of the experience of having the same kind of decontextualized experience she had when she was watching these where she didn't know what these films were she didn't know what these clips were and it was just this constant onslaught of images that were not always pleasant and not always um even if they were again if even if they were cut for reasons of pure censorship they were sometimes uh from films that were clearly um misogynistic in one way or another so it's it's not uninteresting particular and worth seeing for something that's only an hour long but it is something that feels like it's only partially met its potential it sounds like it would have been uh, not to say that it would be better but you know someone like bill morrison who you know i you know, makes this into a collage, you know, in things like Miner's Him or, um, sorry. Uh, I'd Frozen. say not specifically Bill Moore. Like, I think, I think it is notable that it's directed by a woman, but, um, but a, a similar approach that maybe gives us a modicum of context, but doesn't 
give us a, a, like several different thesis statements throughout uh, would probably have been more helpful. I'm curious a little bit more about the footage. I, I mean, are these things like video nasties, like things we'd associate with like exploitation cinema and things like that? Like it's just no, not. I mean, these are from the 50s and 60s and and, and early 70s. So. Like some okay. sometimes you'll see like a major actor like Yul Brynner or Kirk Douglas show up and and uh, like it's it's jarring to see like back to back scenes of major stars like s- just slapping slapping a woman and like all of these sure. in a row and it at very least makes you cognizant of how sometimes this was used just to kind of boost the audience in in a way that uh, uh, what well, made me uncomfortable and, and briefly made me think I was seeing something really extraordinary. But as I became more aware of uh, the framework she was constantly putting on everything she was making us watch, it became a little less effective. This is maybe a little bit of a, a devil's advocate thing here. And no one ever wants to be the devil's advocate. But like, it's it's interesting that you're nonetheless saying that, you know, like the, the montage of, for instance, women being slapped is, you know, vile or something. But I, I don't know, the entire idea of taking some of those like most transgressive moments out of context seems like it would be presenting a, a disingenuous picture you know this this is a fair sorry go ahead no go ahead please no that's a fair argument and it is something i was thinking after a while of well i don't really know what the context is around this but her argument is that she didn't really know what the context was for any of these clips and and like it's suggested that she doesn't know what a lot of these things came from because they're not necessarily clearly labeled. And something she says up front is that these were clearly cut whether, like, it didn't matter whether the film was good or bad. So I do think that that is a fair point, but I think she counters it enough, particularly because um, one of the other things she does is that there is a scene of a live childbirth uh, that was Mm. cut. Um, and it seems to be from just a documentary film, but it's from something that she's, she notes, like this would have been shown to a primarily male audience and, uh, as a way of like titillating them. And what to me was the most beautiful find in this whole thing suddenly became a very dirty thing in that context, which is interesting, but it's one of the few points where I felt her narration worked. Yeah, now, now I'm very curious to see how her narration shapes this, you know, e- even if it, it, it doesn't seem like it, it quite, quite gets there the, the way it potentially could. you uh, see anything else? Yeah, you know, the last two films I'm going to talk about are, interestingly enough, are uh, connected by Alba Rohrwacher, who is an Italian actress who has been around, she's been around for a while. She's shown up in a number of things, including uh, The Wonders and I Am Love and that, uh, that film Hungry Hearts with Adam Driver. Mm-hmm. But um, I especially was caught by her in um, a 2015's film, uh, Sworn Virgin, which is a film uh, from Lauren Bisperi about uh, a woman who, uh, following a ritual in, in Albania, uh, declares her eternal virginity and opts to live a life as a man. So in some ways, it's about... Uh, it's about trans identity without necessarily wanting to like, it's not a cisgender person being a trans person. Like it's much more about the idea of what happens when you 
are a woman who has been deemed by society as existing as something something else, which is, you know, in relation with trans um, conversations, but at least in my uh, admittedly, I, I would like to hear about this from a transgender person as well, but in my eyes, it seems more interesting and less like a, a sense of... Uh, of costuming, but but either way, I, my my point being that um, she really amazed me in that role as uh, as the lead role, uh, Hannah, who then becomes known as as Mark, and um, that was a really interesting film that was nonetheless very much driven by her performance more than the direction, which was very austere and um, a lot of uh, static camera movements and. Uh, just a lot of attention paid to uh, framing those characters in a way that that felt intimate, but also detached in the same way that that character felt. And so her follow up is a, a film that played uh, called Daughter of Mine. And it's a story of a, a young girl named Vittoria who lives with who she believes is her mother. Uh, Tina, played by uh, Valerita Golino, and her actual mother, uh, Angelica, played by Alba Rohrwacher. And so it's set in in, in Italy, in, in this small town where both these mothers uh, live. I, I, obviously, uh, Tina is, um, uh, sorry, is raising Vittoria, and I, the exact circumstances of how that happened are a part of the, the larger plot, but it's, it's not unfair to say again, that this is, a, this is a story at once about adoption. It's about nature nurture in terms of who we feel like we really belong with. And so it's, it's a pretty good film, but I, I think that Alba Roy Walker in this is, uh, is really excellent. She's, um, She's in some way there's there's a very like fragile self-destruction to her and there is her character is very much a a troublemaker. She's someone who is constantly is constantly down and she's hard drinking and there's this like impish cruelty to her like re- relatively early in the film she says something like she she's holding a horse and she's like, you know what horses, uh, you know what happens to horses when they become lame, they shoot them with a shotgun. And she's like, don't become lame or I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> so there's like, <laughs> so, but like she delivers it in such a way that those things are, you know, they're, they're not jaw dropping and they're not necessarily completely charming, but there's a, there's an, there's an edge and a charisma there to those. Um, and so the, so the film itself is, is very much just, just kind of a character study of this young girl stuck between these two women and how these two women also react to that, uh, that growing, you know, the, the push and pull of how close and far they get away from this young girl. Um, it's, it's a good, it's a it's a good film. Um, I'm not sure I quite like it as much as uh, Sworn Virgin. It's certainly not as uh, unique a, a subject, um, but I still think in the ways that it conveys motherhood and the the careful way it, it shows how even the people who we don't feel like, or excuse me, who we don't associate ourselves with, we have bonds that 
you know, are not only a blood bonds, but are almost uh, telepathic. So I, so it really, it really moved me. Um, and the last film I want to speak about, which was actually won the top prize at the festival, is uh, Alice Rohrwacher, her sister, <laughs> her sister's new film, uh, Happy as Lazaro which I believe also won something at, uh, at Cannes as well. So Happy as Lazaro is hard to explain <laughs> because it is, it is at once a story kind of about the, the haves and have-nots in, in Italy. Like, it's, uh, there is a manor where there are hundreds of people who are working on this farmland and it's unclear what the time period is and uh the main character is lazaro who is just kind of this dumb as an ox young boy who is kind of manipulated and taken advantage of by both the the poor and the rich and this is somehow not a spoiler because it's still early like to give a sense the there is a boy in the wealthy family, like uh, he's the son of a, um, sorry, he's he's the son of the uh, the person who owns this land, this estate, and he rebels against his parents and regularly does pranks. And one of the major pranks he does is he makes Lazaro believe that he kidnapped him. <laughs> So then there's this whole idea about this whole larger idea again about the the poor rising up against the, the wealthy and this idea of how these two groups go together and sorry Alice Rohrwacher and her DP just do kind of an amazing blocking job. Like at times there are like 25 people in a single frame. Like it's, it's really pretty insane because you, you have so many, you have so many characters in each of these groups. Um, and so I, I, I called it on Twitter. Like if Boonwell, if, uh, sorry. Uh, yeah. If Boonwell made being there, and I stand by that, and that somehow also gets at the scope and the humor and the interest in class dynamics and also just, like, the acidity that's at the heart of this film. But going back to Alba uh, Roa Walker, she plays uh, one of the, one of the uh, poor people who live on the land. And her performance, again, is... It's so fascinating that both of these performances are at this festival because, you know, her role as um, her role in Daughter of Mine is so uh, mercurial and and unpredictable and and also just kind of fun and, and vivacious. But her her role in this is much more, again, just it, it requires her to kind of uh, multitask a lot of different dynamics in terms of being very maternal, but also kind of being conniving. Um, you know, she's kind of, she lives a pretty hard scrabble life. So she's very, um, she's very uh, manipulative, but not uh, selfish. And, you know, it's, I I feel like I still haven't even done a good job of describing this because I've only described about the first 45 minutes of this film and then it dramatically changes and becomes more metaphysical and um you know a 
a screed against modernism and a, uh, a kind of an allegorical story about, uh, excuse me, about, uh, again, the, the poor and rich and how we create these ideas of the opposition being evil or, or of them having malicious intent and it, of it being far more uh, pragmatic and complicated. And yeah, I, I'm not sure ultimately it reaches the most satisfying conclusion. And it's a little bit, there's a, a certain severity, like art house quality to its ending that I, that I don't particularly like given how otherwise playful the rest of the film feels. Um, but yeah, it's, it's coming out on Netflix soon. So you're going to be able to watch it very soon. Uh, and maybe you'll understand why I had to do such an incredibly fractured description of this. Uh, I, I can't imagine everyone is going to like this, but I think it's an incredibly audacious film. Um, and certainly put me, uh, on uh, Bro Walker's, uh, excuse me, Alice Bro Walker's radar, let alone uh, Albert Roe Walker, who I don't know. After these recent films, I'm uh, as much as I dislike hyperbole. I, I'm I think I might be ready to say she's one of our, our best up and coming uh, actors at the moment. So yeah, um, those are the the last two films I, I saw. Well, I had I had a question about Happy sure. as Lazaro. Um, did you see Warwalker's previous film, um, Alice Warwalker's previous film, The Wonders, by any chance? I have not. See, I I haven't either. I heard it was a similar cut. Well, not not necessarily similar in subject matter, but I have I have been told that it has a similar kind of thing where it seems to be one kind of movie and then it goes off in a very different direction. Um, or just ha- go undergoes some sort of a shift, so it it seems yeah. like something that it, that interests her as a director. So I'm curious to see both now. Yeah, I I think that you know we we see plenty. You know, we always want a film that that mutates from our expectations, and you know we've seen certainly uh, many films um, that that change pretty dramatically in their second half. But I think that they're is a way that this bridges the two sections. And uh, again, it brings a certain sense of surrealism and brings, but but it's surrealism in the same way, like going back to Bunuel, like that exterminating angel is surrealism. Mm. Like, it, like it's a power and a force that is either keeping people or sending them to a place that is inexplicable, but so profound and so ultimately, like life changing, that it, it's not under their control. Like, 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 there's certainly a a, a comic sensibility that's uh, Bunuelian, but it's yeah, but it, but it's also that idea in in terms of how it can change and how it can feel organic and how it then recontextualizes a number of relationships we thought we understood or we thought were far more simple or not necessarily more simple, but more static than we expected. Okay, well, you uh, you ended <laughs> with a winner, uh, the, the big winner of the festival, and also with the, uh, it, you were right, it won Best Screenplay at Cannes. Um, and uh, I ended with not that. Uh, the last <laughs> film I saw was Mike Lee's Peterloo. 
I, I, I'm trying to, like, I, I don't think it's a terrible film, um, but the muted reaction that it got at most festivals, at least that I've seen, is a- appropriate, which is not something I expected. It's the big disappointment of the festival because I, I, I'm a fan of his and I did like Mr. Turner quite a bit for another historical drama. But um, this is about the uh, 1819 Manchester Peterloo Massacre in which uh, 18 people were killed and 700 were injured during a protest for uh, parliamentary reform. And it's like a lot, like every Mike Lee film that I've seen, at least, it, it feels very lived in. It's very meticulously researched in a way that seems to not just be window dressing. Like it feels it's like hope for the DP as well, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's also it's it's largely well acted, um, especially by Rory Kinnear as a representative who's a self-styled man of the people who, when it comes to day to day interactions, doesn't actually interact with people very well, which is one of the more interesting threads. And uh, it's also admirably angry. It's a film that suggests that peaceful protest may not the peaceful protest uh, from unarmed citizens may not be enough uh, sometimes when it comes to making your voices heard, uh, which is an interesting thread to go down. But I don't think that he really finds a lot of direction for it. it it's a really just shapeless film where it kind of just trudges along, convinced that yet another scene of soaring proletarian rhetoric or backstage bickering between uh, the various different factions or these ruling class machinations where the 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 ruling class people in this are just they're they, the actors seem to have been instructed to play it up as grotesquely as possible where there's one in particular I, I'm 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 blanking on which actor it is it has a this film has a very large cast where it seems like he was instructed to shake his jowls whenever he like spoke <laughs> Which, like, I don't mean to, like, be, to, to mock the actor. It's just, it feels like the the the, the villains in, in, in the film have been directed to play as if they're in a much less realistic film than they're in. Which comes across as a little broad, but I'd be more willing to accept if the film had an overall shape other than this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then it leads to the massacre. It's not completely without interest, but... It's my least favorite thing Lee has done, at least that I've seen. Uh, it, so it it does sound like it's it's a pretty. Uh, do you think the possibility is that they should have honed in more on a particular side? It sounds. I, I mean, I know you're saying shapeless, but I, I find it surprising that they would even spend so much time with the ruling class. From well, it's, from what they're you're not. Saying. They're like they're secondary, uh, but their scenes are largely all the same but a problem is that the scenes with the various uh, protesters and other reformers are also largely redundant it's the the number of scenes of of people giving speeches to rooms of people saying something along the lines of here here like i i lost count at, at a certain point and while you could argue that there is a point to that in that there's a lot of, well, need for just general speechifying and not terribly exciting meetings and backstage wrangling when it comes to these things. I don't think Lee really finds an angle on it. Mm-hmm. That's that's disappointing, especially considering, I mean, not only considering the, the relevance to this, this moment, but yes. I, it, that is good to hear, especially after 
you know, I can't remember. Holy shit. Was Detroit last year or this year? No, last year. Yeah, <laughs> Detroit know, like, was last year. Yeah. Like when you think about, for instance, that film's view towards writing or, or at least somewhat, uh, you know, both sides ism, it, it's good to hear at least that Peter Liu, even if it's dramatizing something from the 19th century, it, it's still coming at it with, you know, a fire. Yeah. And, like, well, it's it's a strange thing where it's funny you mentioned Detroit because that's a film that I felt seemed like it should have been more sprawling than it was, where it spends so much time on the central sequence, which isn't even necessarily the thing I would have expected from a movie about the Detroit riots, but sure. which which is also um, both of them have a great deal to ad- admire, particularly I, I mentioned Rory Kinnear. I, I want to just note how good he is in this. Like he's. An actor who um, I, I know I've seen him before in in a number of things, like from the the recent Bond movies to one of one of one of its weaknesses. But it's the, the Hollow Crown. But he's really uses his body in an interesting way, where mm. he will like when he is giving a speech, he seems to have complete control over how he like will move like his torso or his arm. Or, or like even just shift his head in a way that really can put like really excite a crowd. But when he's off stage, he seems deeply uncomfortable consorting with any of these people in a way where his body language seems a little more halting and sometimes deliberately dismissive. There's a scene in which he meets with a couple of performers after his first big speech in the film. And after as they're uh, wrapping up and they say, well, goodbye, it's nice to meet you, see you again. Like he, his back is turned to them and he doesn't turn around and uh, very deliberately continues a conversation with someone else. So that was a performance I, I admired in the film and there were there were a handful of others, but it's just, it's so overstuffed and so, well, I said shapeless before, but I'll say it again. It, it, it feels like it just never really yeah. finds... A, a, a sense of, of of a need for being beyond. Well, this is a topic that has gained new re- relevance today. I, I, I'll say one other thing about uh, Rory Kinnear too. You know, it, it's really interesting. You mentioned the the body language and and the sense of uh, the way that he uses his body because uh, I, I was trying to remember where I'd seen him and I realized it's in Penny Dreadful <laughs> and he's actually. Oh yeah, uh, I've seen him in that too. You're right. Yeah. And and he's pretty good in that. In part because his his body language is so grotesque and he really brings it into that that character so i just yeah, he, found he that a funny the, uh, for those who have not seen uh penny dreadful he plays the uh frankenstein's monster uh it, it's a collection of various um favorite horror characters of of the victorian era yeah i i think that is everything but i do i want you to end on a, a good note so it, it sounds like there weren't a lot of uh, huge highlights for you this week but what overall were your uh, what what are your favorite things that you've seen over the the last two weeks? So real quick, I just realized that uh, Frankenstein is not of the Victorian era. Sorry, just for <laughs> for that. Um, okay, so the things I, I most enjoyed my my favorite was Transit, which we talked about on the last episode. The Third Wife would probably be next after that. I really enjoyed Ashes Purest White, which we talked about on the last episode. Uh, Birds of Passage, which I uh, saw uh, and talked about on the last episode, and Rafiki, which we talked about on the last episode. Yeah, I. I it sounds like most of your highlights were last week, but uh, yeah, if I was going to probably do top 
five. Uh, I might say um, Ashes Purest White uh, tra- Transit, The Third Wife, Happy as Lazaro, and uh, Diane or Ellen. Hell, I'm not sure. <laughs> So I picked six there, so I cheated. Whoops. But uh, I don't I don't know. Is there anything else we want to talk about, Max? Is there anything else you wanted to say about the festival experience, especially after? I, I mean, you made it to quite a, a number of screenings. So I know, you know, um, you were dealing with crowds and things as well. Well, I hope next year I do the second half without catching a cold. <laughs> yeah, I had heard that you got a little little sick towards the end. It is what it is. I suppose that is guaranteed to happen in situations like this. To take us out, uh, Max, you already said where um, where you can be found these days. Is there anything specific you want to plug or any anything else that you didn't mention previously? N- not at the moment, no. Okay, cool. And uh, you can catch me. On uh, the film stage show, we just put out our episode for Apostle, the latest film from uh, Gareth Evans, and uh, we will have an episode this week, a classic episode of the original Suspiria, so look out for that, and um, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Bye. Bye.